Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. It is Wednesday, September 28th. Hollywood has a reputation for being a pretty progressive place. Stars and producers are often out there advocating for change. Maybe you've seen it on award shows. I know I have. But when it comes to gender equality in Hollywood, the numbers are not good. San Diego State does a survey every year on the percentage of women working off camera in movies. It was 17% in 1988 and 25% in 2021, an increase of just eight percentage points in all those years. The percentages of women directors in the top 100 U.S. films dropped to 12% in 2021, according to the celluloid ceiling. In executive suites, the numbers are probably a little better. They don't keep exact tallies. And the industry has come a long way from the 1980s when Sherry Lansing became the first woman to run a major studio at Paramount. But still, there are zero women currently in the CEO or chairman job of any of the big media or tech companies. Zero. Julia Borston would know this because she interviews all the CEOs for CNBC. She's the senior media and tech correspondent for the network. She started her career at Fortune. She wrote a great new book called When Women Lead. It's out October 11th. And it's all about the different reasons and explanations for why women are particularly adept at leading companies and some of the hurdles that are still blocking them from doing so. It's a fascinating conversation. So today, Julia Borston talking about women and gender inequality in Hollywood. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. Okay, we are here with Julia Borston from CNBC and an author now. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. So great to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, thanks. We've been friends for a while. We've known each other. Gosh, we were probably introduced mid-2000s. That sounds about right. I moved out to LA uh, 2007. Okay, so probably right around then. Um, and you do great interviews on CNBC with all of the top executives. Um, you make everyone else around town jealous because you always get the best access to people. I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, and now you've written a book, uh, When Women Lead. Why did you decide to do this as your first book? 
You know, I've interviewed thousands of CEOs in my 20 plus years as a business journalist. And of course, I was struck by the fact that women's were the exception to the rule. Right now, women represent about 8% of Fortune 500 CEOs. That is an all-time high, which is crazy. Female (laughs) founders last year drew 2% of all venture capital dollars, which is crazy. So crazy that some of the statistics in my book, uh, the copy editors thought they were typos. These are not typos. Gender gaps in business are just massive. But I also felt like the women I was interviewing, especially in the startup space, in the tech space, they were amazing. They were remarkable. They weren't just exceptions to the rule, but they really seemed to be leading in exceptional ways, thinking um, more big picture, uh, more long-term planning, and, and managing their teams and trying to prompt innovation in really different ways. So I wanted to tell their stories because these are stories that people do not know. But I also figured if these women could defy those crazy odds, then there would be valuable takeaways, not just for women, but for everyone. There's a fascinating anecdote in your book about how in the early 80s, the percentage of computer science students who were women was rising and it had reached 37% in 1983. Then there were a series of movies that came out that sort of glamorized young male computer science nerds, tech people, things like Real Genius or Weird Science, Short Circuit, Last Starfighter, War Games, that whole run of movies in the early 80s cut to 10 years later, and the percentage of women who are computer science people has dropped to 17%. So most people in this world believe that the impact of what was out there in the media did matter and did contribute to these numbers reversing. Obviously, you agree with that, right? Yeah, I mean, one reason I love covering the entertainment industry is because it is incredibly powerful. I'm not just talking about the fact that it generates massive profits uh, and is, is a huge financial engine, but Hollywood has massive ripple effects and massive power around the world. We always talk about how Hollywood is America's most powerful export. And I think if you look at the cultural impact of the stories that Hollywood tells, the impact is huge. And if you look at that 20 percentage point decline in female representation in computer science over about 25 years, Hollywood, I think, is to blame for that. That's the bad news. The good news is that Hollywood also has the opportunity to get different narratives out there and and to tell different stories. So I think that when there was a you know a rush of movies that valorized and glamorized the young geeky male coder and they left women out of the equation, you may say like doesn't really matter that women represent such a small percent of directors and the answer is yes if you care about the impact on culture. So I think that's why when you look at companies like Hello Sunshine, and I, I write about Sarah Hardin and Reese Witherspoon in my book, or or Lena Waithe, who I also write about in my book, the fact that they are telling stories that are authentic to them and getting the voices of women and people of color into the content machine has massive ripple effects. It's not just about who's being employed here in Hollywood. It's what are the messages and stories that are being exported all around the world. And obviously, those movies were all directed by men. The ones that I, the ones that I mentioned, and it was yeah. a it's a fairly recent phenomenon that women are even on the lists for potential directing jobs. I mean, it was by far the exception to the rule. I think that is changing. The numbers haven't quite caught up, but that is. And let's talk a little bit about Hello Sunshine because that is a fascinating case study of a of a Reese Witherspoon's a big star, but a lot of stars have companies. 
Not a lot of stars have companies like this, which has been so successful with a specific mission. The mission is to make female-oriented projects by women for women with a female leadership team. And explain a little bit about how that company works and what you found in your research. Well, I think it's interesting just to think about how it came about. You know, Reese Witherspoon, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, she wanted a really strong role. She didn't want to just be in romantic comedies. She wanted um, roles that would really be befitting of her as, a, as an actor. And she went around to all the studio chiefs and they said, we don't really have anything for you. And one of them said, oh, we have a movie that's meant to star a man and we could just change it and make it for a woman. And she said, this is ridiculous. No one is creating movies for me to star in and for people like me to watch. So she took matters into her own hands and she loves to read. And so she figured if she could go to the source and start acquiring rights to books, she could use those as the source material for content. What's so interesting about Hello Sunshine and really distinguishes it from some of these other companies run by celebrities or actors is she's not just trying to produce content starring herself. She's trying to produce content that has nothing to do with her. So many of the TV series she starred in, but the idea is that in its success, Hello Sunshine has divisions across every single platform, whether it's TV um, or streaming or movies that are starring other actors produced and, uh, and and directed by many other people. And the whole idea is to get authentic, what they call authentic authorship. When they did Little Fires Everywhere, they wanted to make sure they had people in the writer's room who really represented the people in the story that was being told. They didn't want a bunch of white dudes sitting around and saying, okay, this is what a black woman would be thinking in this situation, or this is how um, someone would be approaching, a, a mom would be approaching adoption when it was when it was people who had no experience with that uh, in reality. And they really wanted to create this idea of authentic authorship. And it's worked. I mean, their content has been on every single platform, um, whether it's Apple TV uh, Plus or Hulu and or, a, or HBO Max. Um, I have to say, I love the morning show as a journalist. And and you I think, do? Yeah, I do. I think it's so interesting. I like season one. I it fell off the rails. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't stop watching it. Come on, admit it. Season two, not good. I'm I'm the target demo for this, but that's okay. Yeah, you literally I'm, work in broadcast journalism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it always makes me feel better when their alarms went off before mine went off. Right. Um, but I think that's what's so interesting is they wanted to flip the script and they wanted to have the people in the writers' rooms represent the people who are on the screen. And they found great success with that. They had a big deal um, selling the company and or or at least part of the company in their... Um, Kevin Mayer's Candle Media. Yes, yes Candle Media. Um, but I think there's this idea that Sarah Hardin, who's CEO of the company, talked about. She said, we have to make this successful. We need to succeed because if we do, we prove the value of female audiences. We prove the value of putting diverse characters on the screen and having diverse voices produce that content. So she wanted to have the success because it sets a precedent uh, for, for what's to come. And I think that, you know, Hollywood gets stuck in these cycles where they're used to doing um, similar things and they wanted to break out of that cycle. I feel like the past five years have probably had more movement on this topic than probably the previous 25 years. Um, and you see a lot of, it's almost like there's a backlash now where people say, okay, we've done the diversity thing. When's it going to go back to, you know, normal? Who's saying that? Who's no, saying that? No, you hear it all the time. And what you, is normal? What normal where women don't get direct any movies? Is that what we want to aspire to? You hear to? it a lot. No, you don't hear it that overtly, but you do hear it like, oh, okay, there's, you know, the, the goal right now is to have 
representation at any at any cost. Meaning that you want a diverse writer's room, even if it means no experience. There is a fear in certain quarters, I think, of, of over-representation, the pendulum swinging too far. But I, that's to me, that's always, it's sort of not the point. The point is that these companies can be financially successful and that you are better serving the audience if you have better representation and you can tell more authentic stories. A hundred percent. This is not a philanthropic thing to put women in starring roles. Um, this is not about doing a favor to female actors. This is this is about trying to serve your audience and Hello Sunshine and, and these other companies that are, are investing in diverse voices. They're saying we want to serve our audience and our audience is not a bunch of white men. There was a study that just came out about how Hollywood is missing a big opportunity by not having more Hispanic characters in leading roles. So I think there's a, an awareness of the fact that A, Hollywood is is. America's most powerful export, and there is opportunity overseas. But here in the U.S., if you want to reach the population, the population of America is incredibly diverse, and you want to reach those people. Um, it's interesting because Lena Waithe, who I interviewed, she tells very specific stories, and she won an Emmy for um, for an episode uh, Master, uh, Master of None, a Master of None, where she talked about the thanks her Thanksgiving coming out story to her family, and it tells a story of Thanksgiving with a family, and also her coming out of the closet, and it's a very specific narrative. But what she found is the specificity of that narrative, something that probably would only hold true to a small percentage of people rang true to people who had nothing to do with her story. And she said she would find these, these bros come up to her on the street and say, that Thanksgiving episode you directed was so true to my experience with my family. She's like, what are you talking about? You're a straight white dude. But she found that her in her specificity, there are these universal messages. And so I think that this idea that you can only relate to something that looks and sounds exactly like you is just false. Um, but I also have to think back at Wonder Woman and Black Panther. Everyone wondered, could those movies be big hits if they were driven by by a woman and a and and black actors like are people going to come out for those and the answer is yes you know black panther proved the the universal appeal of of a diverse cast and and wonder woman succeeded despite having a woman a female superhero as a star so i think that the perception is starting to change um but it's interesting what? as go ahead no no i was just gonna say it's interesting as you know as studios make fewer films and each one of them is a bigger bet. Um, I hope that they don't revert to the to the sort of safe space of male franchise driven franchise films and see the financial opportunity in in diverse voices. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. So we're coming up on five years since the initial Harvey Weinstein story in the New York Times that kicked off the Me Too movement. Um, from your perspective, someone who's female and interviewing the top executives, what's changed and what hasn't? Um, what's interesting, actually, 
about my book is I covered a lot of the Harvey Weinstein stuff in terms of its implications for business. There were many CEOs in the world of media and tech who were fired because of Me Too, Time's Up related things. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about Les Moonves, even Kevin Sujihara. Those are the leaders of CBS and Warner Brothers. Yeah. So there was a lot of change in Hollywood, um, just in the management ranks, uh, more so than I, I think in other industries. My book very much focuses on the positive stories. Everyone was like, oh, is your book about Me Too and Time's Up? And I said, no, we've had enough. I've, I've heard and read and reported enough on that. And I think that one thing that was lost in that process is a focus on the positive. You know, that process was all about how these men did horrible things. But on the flip side of that, you have women who are doing amazing things. And women who are changing the world with their companies, leading in different ways and inspiring me to change the way I work and, and do my job. Um, and that's really what my book is about. So I wanted to flip the narrative and go from, okay, we've, we've had that chapter and now's the time to, to start looking at women as, as an opportunity and not, and, and to tell their positive stories. So I think it's, it's enough time has passed from that to really look at the other side of the equation and what we can all learn from women. Um, but I think that the industries um, in both tech and media and different spaces have changed. And I think there's more attention to the data and the numbers and an understanding that if you have diverse represent, you know, gender diversity at different levels of the company, that's going to help insulate you and pre prevent bad things from happening. And that can help protect the culture. And I'm one thing that makes me optimistic is the idea that, the more there's data, whether it's data about gender representation uh, behind the camera or in front of the camera, the more people are thinking about the numbers, the more they're actually evaluating things and keeping track of things, not just assuming they know what's going on. So I think there's an increased attention to um, the power and value of having women in these leadership roles. Yet at the very top, there are still zero women at the chairman CEO level. You and I know there are very savvy and smart women who are in number two or number three jobs. Why has that not happened? Change moves slowly. Mm -hmm. These companies have been controlled by most of the same guys for a really long time, mm -hmm. right? I mean, David Zaslav has always been running a media company, and now he's running an even bigger one. Um, Bob Chapek was one of several men who was in a position to take over after Bob Iger. So At I think- at Disney. So I think if you look at not just the CEO level, but the level right beneath that, mm -hmm. it probably shouldn't be a surprise that the people who have risen into the CEO spot um, in recent years have all been have all been men. Yeah. And in music, there is a woman, Jody Gershon, who is at yeah. um, Universal Music Publishing. Yeah. And there is speculation that when the CEO, Lucian Grange, and you know, ends his tenure at Universal Music, she would be a candidate to take over there. She came up in the talks for the Warner Music job that ultimately went to Robert Kinkle at uh, YouTube. So it's almost there. But if you look at other places like the automotive industry, they have Mary Barra. If you right, look yeah. at places that, you know, Pepsi has had a female CEO. Um, there just hasn't been that person in media. 
So I have a, so there's this theory called token theory, which is mm-hmm. when there's only one of a woman or one of someone from a minority, they face additional scrutiny. And I think for a long time, that was true in Hollywood. There was one of Sherry Lansing, right? And so people paid a lot of attention to her, which was both good and bad. But then there's this other theory called critical mass. And once women or a minority group get to between 20 and 30% of a bigger group, that's when they can impact real change. So they saw this in the Senate. They saw this, um, you know, when it came to Senate passing laws that would be beneficial to women. Um, And they also have seen it in various smaller environments. So if a boardroom has 30% women, that's when the board can start, the, the women in the room can start to impact real change. It's very hard if you're the only one. And I think the same thing would hold true in Hollywood in the C-suite. So once you start to have women in 30% of those C-suite roles, that's when you're going to have more potential having women in the top spot. So I'm hopeful that once things hit that 30% mark in the C-suite and in management, that's when you could see real change, including in that very top, that top role. And it's, you know, Sherry Lansing had a very successful and long tenure, and she made the kind of movies that were called, you know, the Sherry Lansing thrillers, where there was a female star, things like the Ashley Judd movies, like Double Jeopardy or Kiss the Girls or even Fatal Attraction, things like that, that became known as having a female perspective. So there was value that the studio had from that perspective. Amy Pascal at Sony Pictures as well. She brought a very particular sensibility to her job there, and she had a nice run there for a long time. So it's it's kind of it's interesting that it that it, it hasn't happened there yet. Um, yeah. All right, let's 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 move on to some topics in in the industry right now because I know you are interviewing all these people and you've got insights. What do you think? You mentioned Bob Chapek. How do you think he is doing as the Disney CEO, and how? Has his different style of management from the previous CEO, Bob Iger, uh, gone over at the company and in the world? Where do you think he is right now? Well, I think right now he's on the upswing. Mm -hmm. They had great earnings um, and they're about to launch this ad-supported Disney+. Plus. I think he had a really rough patch around the Florida don't say gay bill stuff and um, a lot of outrage and frustration about how he was handling that. Did you ever think he was in peril of not getting his deal renewed? It depended who I was talking to. I talked mm-hmm. to a lot of people who were very frustrated. I think it would have been very hard for the board not to renew him for at least a bit. So I think the question was just how long was he renewed for? It's very it's very unusual to just, I mean, to not renew his contract would have effectively been like just firing him. And that would have been very unusual for a company that has as many things going right as Disney did. So I'm not surprised that they renewed his contract. I do think getting that contract renewal, having those strong numbers they reported in August, sets him up to be in a position of strength and now perhaps make some bolder moves when it comes to content and the streaming space and how much he's investing in, in the Disney Plus and that new bundle, which they're creating of Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. And I think the real thing to watch there is, you know, they, they're raising prices on Disney Plus what does the new ad-supported version look like? And are they able to really, you know, remain in a top spot in these streaming wars because Netflix is going to introduce an ad-supported version and all signs point to people wanting to pay for fewer services, right? So he's going into a, a you know, potential recession with some big um, questions and challenges. We'll see whether spending at the parks holds up. Oh my God, I was there on Monday. How was it? They just they just back up the vacuum cleaner, <laughs> attach it to your pockets, and just start sucking. 
it is just one thing after another. But my kid had a good time. So was it, it worth it? Was it worth it? Of course. Listen, yeah. the kid has a good time. We're uh, we're fine. But but yeah, that's why. I mean, they're just they're they're doing. I think they're doing well uh, because the parks are powering everything and the streaming situation. They have to sort out what that's actually going to be. But I think he seems more confident, and I think he seems like he's sort of f- finding his stride. In the last interview I did with him on CNBC in August. He seemed to have a new sense of sort of calm and confidence to take on this new challenge and like he was coming at it from a position of strength rather than being under fire from all of these different groups. Um, so I think he probably learned a lot from that that Don't Say Gay Bill experience that he will bring with him into his management if he's smart. Did he have the beard, the power beard? Yeah, the, the power beard, I think, is his new his new move. It, it works. I like it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Netflix. Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings, uh, they've got to figure out their model as well. People are underestimating as much coverage as the Netflix ad tier has gotten. I think people are still underestimating how massive this change is for this company that said they would never have ads and that they are going to be premium and always have this one value proposition for the customer. Pay us a price. You get everything you want. No questions asked, no ads, no nothing. It's a totally different ballgame now. It's a totally different ballgame. It's very hard to do ads right without really frustrating your viewers. You want ads to feel not too intrusive. Obviously, you know, on Hulu, there are fewer minutes of ads than there are on TV. And people really, um, they're willing to watch ads if they get to pay less money, but you want the experience to be good. And you just have to look at what Netflix built in terms of this, this content machine, this volume machine. And I think their biggest mistake was getting people used to binging. I think that was a huge mistake. I totally agree. There was this moment, I think it was in February, it was there, there some earnings report after the new year and they were talking about fourth quarter results and they said, we are re- changing how we're calculating the value of our content. We used to amortize our content over a certain amount of time because we assumed that content would be valuable over quarters. Now we realize that people just burn through content incredibly quickly. That totally changes everything. Once you know that your content is not as valuable as you thought it was, why are you spending that much money on their on your content? You got to you got to stretch it out. You got to stretch it out. I mean HBO is sitting right there. They do it well. They put a couple episodes or they put one episode for the big shows and then it's weekly. Drip feed. You got to drip feed your content. So I would predict And it keeps people subscribed. Yeah, it keeps people subscribed. I would predict Netflix has already started to break up seasons into do. I would predict that they move away from the binge model. It's just too expensive for them. I think that the ad business is so challenging. Obviously, they've hired some big name people, but it's going to be interesting to see what their ads look and feel like. And they've given all these warnings that this is just the beginning and the ad business is going to change. And this is it's not going to look like what it looks now and in two years from now. Um, but they're promising really high prices to uh, to advertisers or the idea that their ads will be incredibly valuable so that they'll be able to charge a lot for them. That's a that's a bold move. Some people have said there's too much hubris there. So we'll see on that. And then also the question is, um, you know, they've lost so much content to the other streamers. Are they going to be able to hold on to subscribers? Are is anything like games going to really help with that? Um, not for a while. I mean, they, they not just for don't. A while. Yeah, they don't have anything of, of note. But like, are games going to ever really help with that? Like, how much would they have to have in terms of games to be able to use games to really minimize churn? But at the same time, I have to say on CNBC, I just reported on the fact that the stock went up um, almost 10% in one day because of these bullish notes talking about the potential in advertising. And these analysts are saying that even if people go from the 
the ad-free subscription version to the lower cost ad-supported version that Netflix will actually make more money from them. They will do fine because people spend so much time streaming that they'll watch a lot of ads. So- well, but they spend so much time streaming on Netflix because there's no ads. That's the <laughs> like chicken and egg scenario. Yeah. Are people going to still just turn it on and leave it on while they're doing all their other stuff if they have to endure annoying ads? Well, it all depends on how good the ads are and how much of this service costs. We don't know how much it's going to cost, but the whole idea, whether it's this or Disney Plus or Hulu with ads, they want to make sure that if you downgrade from the ad-free version to the ad version that they don't make less money. That's what they need to make sure. That is the trillion dollar question. And I am not positive that they know the answer to that, even despite what they say. All right, Julia Borston, thank you very much. The book is great. When Women Lead, it is out October 11th. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, here's my prediction. Star Trek 4 will never happen. So this is the Zachary Quinto, Chris Pine, Star Trek, yes. right? They've done three of them. Yes. they. It's actually kind of hilarious. They, Paramount, the studio behind it, announced on an earnings call for investors earlier this year that they were in the works on a new Star Trek movie. And everyone was like, oh, that's interesting. Getting the game back together. So people called up the actors and their reps. And the reps were like, mm, that's news to us. Uh, haven't heard of that project. How does that happen? <laughs> Which is insane. First rule of negotiation is you don't announce <laughs> the deal before you have a deal. Because all that does is give the actors gigantic leverage to raise their fees in order to make good on the announcement. So lo and behold. Well, it turns out maybe not. <laughs> you know, true. But lo and behold, uh, yesterday there was a very slight change to the release calendar. The Star Trek movie that was scheduled for December of 2023 is all of a sudden not on the calendar anymore. So they have taken it off calendar. Now they say it's not dead, that they are still negotiating. They need a writer, director to set all the creative stuff and then the cast deals will be done. But people I've talked to say, good luck getting this whole cast back together to do this. It's going to take a lot of money. And they have no creative plan as of now. My guess is everybody moves on and this does not happen. And the next Star Trek movie we get will be a reboot of some sort. Well, do you think this is all because of that, that slip up at the earnings report? Or do you think this would have happened anyway? Well, they put it on the calendar because they announced it. Right. And I, I don't know why they chose to announce it. That's very odd that you do that before you're all buttoned up on, on getting the deals done or at least in negotiations where yeah, you have an up agreement. implies they were in the 11th hour. It sounds like it was not close. No, they weren't even, they hadn't even approached the cast. <laughs> like that's why they're like, yeah, news to us. So uh, that's, that's a big, big, big fail. But uh, I just think they got to go a different direction with Star Trek. I mean, there's been talk over the years, Tarantino wanted to direct one. There was talk of JJ Abrams coming back. There was all sorts of, you know, ideas that were bandied about for Star Trek. Um, I think they need to just go back to the beginning and figure out new generation of Star Trek movies. Although if they do allow Quentin Tarantino to write and direct a, a Star Trek, Chris Pine would probably have to be in it because Chris Pine is one of Tarantino's favorite actors and he's never worked with them. Is that true? How do you know that? He came in to The Ringer. And he said that? Did, yeah, he loves Chris Pine. We did the movie um, Unstoppable, the, tra the train movie, the, the oh, Tony yeah. Scott film with Chris Pine and Denzel Washington. He loves Chris Pine. Then why hasn't he put him in a movie? I'm sure Chris Pine would jump at that chance. It's sure as hell better than working with Harry Styles on the Olivia Wilde movie. 
Yeah. So don't be surprised if the next, the, the 10th and final, perhaps final Tarantino film has Chris Pine in it. All right. Craig has made his prediction. <laughs> All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank Julia Borston for coming in. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you Friday with a very special episode. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.